The following episode of the 9pm edict isn't. No, it's not. It's an episode of Well May We Say, uh, which is the Australian progressive politics podcast from Jeremy Siapirko in Melbourne. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. I have been a guest on Well May We Say before. This is number four, uh, but the last time was a year ago. And uh, back then, Melbourne, uh, where Jeremy is, was in COVID-19 lockdown. This time, it's uh, Greater Sydney that's in COVID-19 lockdown. And Melbourne is going into lockdown because of the flow-on effects from, uh, well, from Sydney. It's, you know how the plague is working. And uh, because of this uh, Sydney-Melbourne rivalry for... uh, well, for politics, for, you know, who's to blame? Uh, Jeremy's called this episode Anti-Vixers. Oh, dear. Uh, look, we also, uh, in, in amongst those rants, uh, we solve Australia's housing affordability crisis uh, with some of Jeremy's modest proposals. And then we wonder whether there's actually a point to any of this political conversation in Australia these days. Uh, now, I'm going to be listening back to it uh same time you are, kind of, conceptually. I haven't listened to it yet. Uh, but before I press play, remember that at the time of recording, this is currently Sunday morning, you have just four and a bit days left to contribute to my current crowdfunding campaign. That's the 9pm Late Winter Series 2021. Uh, just go to the 9pm All the details, of course, are there. Uh, you want more special guest episodes, don't you? Of course you do. So pop over there and, and do consider uh, tossing a few dollars into the pledge jar. Anyway, I'm about to press the play button and listen to this. You're about to, uh, well, keep enjoying it, I suppose. I hope you do anyway. Here we go. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Pangarang people and the Darug people. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and the modern Australian nation has never made a genuine attempt to come to terms with what was done and to try and work out a way forward. Well may we say God save the Queen because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to better ways to push and pull hey whatever gets you through these days hello and welcome to well may we say a progressive podcast about australian politics this is episode 147 for friday 16th of july 2021 I'm Jeremy Siapico, and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening, what's likely to happen, and hopefully what we can do about it. Uh, tonight's guest host is returning guest host, Stilgarian. Welcome back, Stilgarian. Hi there, Jeremy. It's been a cut, been a month or two since we since we had you on last. It's also been mm. a month or two since I last recorded the podcast. <laughs> um, and I'd like to say thank you to all of our supporters, our Patreon supporters, and and um, subscribers, and people who listen to the podcast who are still here. Notwithstanding, uh, apparently, my disgraceful uh, lack of work ethic. <laughs> As you can hear in the background, it is difficult recording a podcast when, when uh, there are small children around. Uh, in this particular case, asking me how Yoshi can get past... Yes, if, if, he, if he jumps up and goes down... There you go. There you go. Now he's back. There you go. All right. Uh, Yoshi, Yoshi in his woolly world had a, had a difficult uh, path to cross. Anyway, it, it has been difficult. Uh, we have now moved house. So we are now in a different uh, situation and, and there are now... Two living areas, so it will be easier to, in fact, 
record episodes even when... Imprison the children. Uh, find ways for the children to delight themselves whilst we uh, record in a different audio space. Same uh, thing. That said, that, that has not occurred today. Right. <laughs> so, anyway, we, we've had to move uh, due to the wonderful world of uh, rental laws in Australia, whereby they like to pretend that renters have rights. So isn't, isn't that one of the things that's great? Whenever the landlords talk about tenants they're always like oh it's so hard to get rid of this tenant and oh they've got all these rights and oh i have to you know make sure that there are windows and and there's a toilet that works i mean i mean you actually have that in the law now though in victoria right yeah that is a thing that that a rental property in victoria must now have running water uh (laughs) windows that close luxury a stove that works and, and locks on the door. The expectation is that it, that it has some differences from a hovel from the 12th century. Um, that, that's the idea. But, but there's a major hole in it. And certainly the Andrews government last year brought in some supposed rental improvements. And one of them was they supposedly got rid of no reason evictions. Yes. But did they? Did they get rid of no reason evictions? Because they left an exemption. And that exception, that exemption, that exception conveniently gives landlords the power to do whatever they like and overrides essentially all of your other rights because what they can do is they only give you a 12-month lease. Mm. Landlords don't need to give you a long lease, so landlords only only give a 12-month lease uh, because by doing so, they retain the right to kick you out for no reason if in that year you have in any way annoyed them by, you know, insisting on one of your rights, for example, as a tenant that you're supposed to have. Oh, Oh, I guess I guess we have to uh, accede to that. But uh, here's your ninety days' notice. Get out. Well, a lease is a fixed term thing, right? It's a contract. Uh, the, mm. the, the landlord, and I, we can come back to have a bit of a spit about the term "lord" in all that. Um, that. That said, I think it's kind of appropriate because they do, in fact, think of themselves as feudal landowners. Like, well, they, they, do. You know, they they it's the uh, new new uh, new feudal era where where land is passed from generation to generation, and anybody who isn't descended from a landowner can get stuffed. <sighs> and they, they 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 can come into your house every six months to uh, run their fingers uh, over the over the surfaces to see if there's any dust. Because still, Gary, and it is very important for the landlord that there not be dust on any of the furniture that you own that will leave when you leave. Yes, they should definitely have the right to tell you how to keep your your own property clean. It is a strange thing. I mean, we still have in New South Wales the the just the property owner, or as I think we should start calling them, uh, housing service providers to to uh, make it clear that they are providing a service rather mm. than wanting some sort of investment with precisely no risk or effort involved whatsoever. Mm. Sixty days. No reason, just say, look, here we go, here's 60 days notice, goodbye. Uh, and, mm. you know, they wonder why uh, the renters, the people who live in this home, their own home, don't want to improve it or spend money on improving it. Uh, because why would you? Why would you? Well, because they'll jack, if you ever do that, if anybody's ever dumb enough to improve the home they're living in, they'll just jack up the rent, kick you out, uh, put another tenant in at a high rent. Like, if, if it's high, like, you don't have any rights. If you talk about this to anyone from uh, even even the United States, but certainly from Europe, this idea that you can be chucked out of your own home mm. for literally no reason whatsoever, or being as as outrageously far behind in the rent as fourteen days, mm. they'll they'll kind of 
what? look at you strangely and wonder what sort of barbaric society you're living in. I don't know in the US. I think the US is pretty appalling as well. But yes, it, the, Europe, Europe, they, the tenants supposedly have actual rights. And look, it's not hard to fix. Uh, step one, get rid of all no, no the guillotines. Well, actually, it's ironic you say that because um, when you when you <laughs> complain about this with anybody, you'll find some dickhead who'll come in and say, well, maybe you should just buy a house then, yeah. which is pretty much the let them eat cake. Like, it is, <laughs> it is, that is so. literally what it is. It's the, you're complaining about a market that is, is a, a it's not, I, don't, I hate even being a market, but you're complaining about a housing situation where because the market is full of investment money, because, not, not by some, not by accident, but because the LNP under Howard specifically changed the rules to, to turn it into an investment. An investment vehicle is what you're, you're looking for. Yeah. The idea that, as, as so many people have said before, that by investing in property, you will have a guaranteed no effort, no risk, not just nest egg for the future, but a, a growing wealth for the future. Mm. And you hear people say, oh, I'm sure the bubble will burst. And I'm like, no, it's not going to burst until there's an actual real policy change because it's not tied to people's incomes anymore. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with the income of what, what you need as a person who wants to buy and live in a house has because it's not what it is. What it is now is a place where rich people who have money bury their cash. Mm. They put it in a place where they get better returns than in the banks or in, in you know investing in industry or something that actually has some kind of economic benefit, they just pour it into buying up all the land, which is a finite resource. We have to pay increasing rents to live in it, being locked out of the market. But it doesn't matter to them. They squeeze the rents as high as they can get anyway. And I love when landlords, when you talk about changing the law and they say, well, we'll just have to jack up the rents. You're like, like you don't jack them up to the maximum the market will allow anyway. <laughs> Come on. As long as the rich have money, they will keep putting it in. This is the place to put it. Well, you'd be a fool not to, right? That's right. So where, where is, why is the bubble going to burst? What, where, what is the trigger for it bursting? Literally, and, and also, even those of us who need the bubble to, to shrink don't actually want it to burst because that would, that would also backfire on all the rest of us. Like if, if the housing, if there was a, a crash, what we need to do is we need the government to change policy so the, the prices plateau and then change policies in relation to wages so wages catch up. And we go back to the old situation where I love I love how economic conservatives are all like people should be able to buy a house with their hard work, but they've set up a system where you cannot do that. And the only way that anybody young is going to get a house is if they get given it by their parents. You've detached work. Well, from... they've got to die eventually. All those boomers. I mean, yeah. medical science is advancing. I I do grant you that. But sooner or later, they'll bequeath it. They'll bequeath it to their kids. There is going to be this massive transfer of wealth. To yeah, yeah, you know the next generation. It's going to be a bit like, you know, Prince Prince Philip, or rather Prince Charles, uh, waiting around for the Queen to die so he can become king. I mean, she's about to to hit a hundred. He's whatever eighty ish, seventy something. Except that, except that, except the generational wealth transfer is not an equitable. It, it it doesn't mean that everybody who's in the next generation is going to get a house. It means that only the people who are whose parents have the houses and have the equity and and haven't spent it all on, on very expensive nursing homes by that point. Well, yes. Um, but it's only – the, the problem that has been created, which is that the rich are using housing as a way – as a place to park their money, that doesn't get solved by the boomers dying off because it's just the rich of the next generation will continue to do it and it's just going to get more and more concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. Well, Joe Hockey, our former uh, treasurer, uh, 
presented the obvious solution to this, which is you just get a job that pays better. <laughs> yes, that's right. And 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 you know the the starving um, pre pre guillotine owning peasants of uh, you know eighteenth century France, uh, if only they had got off their backsides and bought themselves some cake. I, what, what were they thinking? Uh, look, Sir Gary, they should have I, just become I, I, nobility. I mean, that's that's what you do. <laughs> Why didn't it occur to them to be born to the... Be born well, noble. Know, this is the thing. Yeah. Be born to the rich, exactly. And that's the thing about young people today. They don't have the gumption to get out there and be born to the very rich. Yeah. I just... they don't. It doesn't even occur to them. I mean, I mean that's where I went wrong in my life. You know, mm. if, if I... Classic blunder. Had been born to rich parents, my life would have indeed been and continue to be a lot easier than it is. And and mm. I've only got myself to blame. I wonder if the boomers quite like the idea that by by being the only means um, through which their children will ever have a chance at, at housing, um, their children have to suck up to them for the rest of their lives as well. Well, or they'll donate it to you know the Fred Hollows Foundation or something, or <laughs> or, or their local. The local Liberal Party. The thing about the thing about the housing thing is, the solution is actually not that complicated. Guillotine. It, it's it's. <laughs> all right. Short of bloody revolution. Yes. So, what do we need to do to make housing to improve housing uh, to had affordability? So you can go back to the old situation where you could you know reasonably an average person on an average income could buy an average house in an average suburb sort of thing. We we used to have that. Let's go back there. All right. So, first thing that needs to happen is the the, the bottom line is. You need the investors to piss off. You need the investors to take their money, put it in something else. They've got the money. You need them to take it out of housing, put it into coal. industry. Sorry? Put it into coal. Coal. Gas. Something constructive. <laughs> yeah, the gas-led recovery. Yeah, we've got to cover lockdown in a minute, and, there, and there's another sort of overall broad thing I'd, I'd like to discuss about. What is the point of us having podcasts and discussing politics online? Is there any purpose? We're just talking to our... Talking, preaching to the converted in many ways. What is the point of all of this? Does it actually achieve anything? And I think, I think on on, on um, further consideration between the last podcast and this one, that, that it does. And I've got, I've got a point to make about that. But I'll, let's let's do that after we talk about the uh, horrific lockdown situation. And let's get to that after I make this point. So, investors out. Step one, and this 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 is this has two purposes. So step one, improve renters' rights dramatically across the entire country, uh, mm-hmm. which does two things. One, it um, gives people housing security it means that they don't have to be panicking about um, having to suddenly uh, find thousands upon thousands of dollars for removals every five seconds they can have some you know they, they don't have to God, moving is really expensive oh yeah but also they can their children can have some stability in schools children have a generation that isn't being treated as peasants who have to get uh, you know get kicked out every year and find all the money for that Massively improve renters' rights, starting with get rid of no reason evictions. Going on to, how about this one, Stilgarian? And I'm going to say this one, and um, if you want to scream out, you bolshy commo, get away from this podcast, um, feel free. I love the way you're prepping this. You know, you're not leaving me a lot of wiggle room here. Well, t- t- this, this is how people react to this before they think about it, which is if a landlord wants to kick out a tenant for any reason other than non-payment of rent for a significant period of time or significant damage. So apart from those two, if a landlord wants to end a lease for any reason, I mean, A, they would have to give decent notice. I'm talking three, uh, more than three, you have to give six months notice if you want to kick somebody out. But whatever the, the grounds are and where you're getting to kick someone out, the first thing you change is if a landlord is ending the, the tenancy, they have to pay the renters reasonable moving costs. And they'd be like, oh, but they'll have to find money if I want to kick them out. No, you don't have to kick them out. And if you do want to kick them out, 
somebody has to find the money for them to move. Why should it be the tenant if you're kicking them out? You find the bloody money. That's interesting because it effectively just becomes, well, let's call it a termination fee. Yeah. Whoever, how about this then? Mm. Whoever terminates the tenancy agreement mm. pays a termination fee. The tenants give notice and the landlord can just re-let it. Oh, okay. But the, the yep. moving, the, you don't need an order, a, 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 an order for the tenant to pay their own moving costs. By default, if they move out, they have to pay their own moving costs. There is already a disincentive. They have to pay their own moving costs. Well, that's true. The thing is, there's no disincentive for the landlord to end the tenancy. They should have to pay the renter's moving costs. Now, you'd, you'd have a, a method for doing what a reasonable amount is, and you do. It would be within the area. You wouldn't have to, you know, if they, the land, tenant wants to move across the country, it's not just open slather that the landlord has to pay their moving costs regardless. But it would be a few thousand dollars, whatever the reasonable amount is, to move a, a family in that area. Because otherwise, the tenant has to find it. And I, I, as a person who's had to move, who you know, these 12-month leases they give you, I'm jack of finding a couple of thousand dollars every time they feel like kicking you out. Well, anyone who's living, uh, as the phrase goes, paycheck to paycheck, yeah. you know, we don't use checks, there, there is, by definition, not that amount of money lying around. Yeah, it creates so um, much hardship. And the other thing is, if the landlords had to pay that, and also they should have to release the bond immediately if they want to evict somebody, if the landlords have to have to pay the moving costs and release the bond immediately, there is a disincentive for them to do it for other, anything other than a real reason. At the moment, they can do it for a flimsy reason. Of, they kicked us out of our old place just so they could jack up the rent 35 bucks a week. Mm. We're put to the, all the stress of moving, which you know in your 40s becomes worse and worse, mm. and the thousands of dollars to move. if you have kids yeah. or... You know, whatever. Just so some greedy parasitic landowner whose you know dad made the house for her can jack up the rent by thirty five bucks a week, and there's no no cost to her at all. She has to relet it, which will take moments in Wangaratta because the the market is obscene here. So to make some rich person richer, we're put through, and we're lucky that we could do it. There'd be plenty, yeah, exactly. People living paycheck to paycheck who simply wouldn't be able to find that. So I feel like that, that measure in and of itself would immediately solve a lot of the problems of landlords casually and arbitrarily kicking people out because they don't want to find a couple of thousand bucks. And if they've got a tenant who's okay, they're not going to do it. I had the very great pleasure to uh, see the tweet of someone the other day, uh, and she's in Adelaide, and she and her partner have a, 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 a second property, which they, uh, they rent out, mm. as, as one does. Uh, well, as as they do anyway, I'm not in a position to do that. They uh, go against the advice of their uh, property manager. The property manager, of course, says, you know, keep gently putting up the rent. Mm. They go, well, no, our tenants are really good, and they reduce the rent by a little bit each year because there's no stuffing around. The tenants give them plenty of warning of when, hey, I think that tap in the bathroom's starting to get a bit dodgy. And, of course, yeah. this property owner gets it fixed straight away before it becomes a bigger problem. And that's the thing. None of the changes that I'm talking about affect improving renters' rights like that doesn't harm good landlords. Mm. It, it only affects the parasites who are in there for a quick buck who will treat their tenants like you know, an economic unit that they can exploit. Well, that's what I found, you know, just obscene about uh, some of the the, the property, uh, you know, uh, lobby groups and, and, and uh, such like in, in Victoria when these new rules were, were, were said. They said, oh, no, well, we'll just have to sell our, our, our investment yes. properties if we have to provide a working stove in the kitchen. 
Well, this is why I was saying this has two benefits. The first benefit is that it gives tenants security and reduces um, unnecessary cruel pushing people around and, and exploitation and, and the, the ability of landlords to bully tenants because the tenants are really, really uh, exposed. So yes, it massively improves the basic living conditions of a huge number of Australians. That's benefit number one. Benefit number two is exactly if it does what the landlords threaten it will do and they piss off out of the market. That's a bonus. That's not a, that's not a reason not to do it. That's a plus. That's a feature, not a bug. Everything that gets the landlords to piss off out of the market decreases the upward pressure on house prices. Anything that encourages them to go. And when they like, have you heard them run this line, Stigarian, the one of, but then if I take my rental property away, then that's one less rental property in the market for people who need a rental property. You're like, it's also either, either you sell to a person who, other, another landlord, in which case it doesn't have any effect on supply at all, mm. or you sell it to someone who's going to live in it. Those are the only two possibilities. I suppose there's a third possibility that you spitefully smash it down as you leave, but that seems a bit remote. <laughs> but other than doing that, the house is still there. It is either a rental property from the new owner or somebody's bought it to live in it, which, yes, it's reduced the rental supply. It's also reduced the rental demand. It cancels out. Landlords are not providing anything. It's like, have you seen that image uh, on the... On the you see it going around on Facebook and Twitter. It's like, it's a slug on an arm. And it's like, landlords, what I do, what my family thinks I do, what my, my friends think I do, what society thinks I do. Then the next picture is like, Jesus with a halo, what I think I do. Then <laughs> the last one is what I actually do, which is the slug again. Yes. Not the slug, the, the leech. The leech, not the slug. Yeah. Yeah. Please leave. 100% what we need to be doing is getting... The only way to fix the housing problem is to get landlords to gently go out. And the first thing is... The best way to do that to start with is to get all the really bad ones out by improving rental rights. Because you won't get rid of all the landlords at that point. You'll just get rid of the ones who are the you know, the, 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 the cream of the evil crop. They will piss off. Great. That's step one. That slows it down a little bit. Then you can attend to the next targeted thing that you need to do, which is return the lack the tax laws back to ones that are sane and don't punish you and I for going out and working and massively reward parasites who just buy up shit and sit on it. So you start in and you, you remove ne- negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions when somebody owns more than five properties. Okay, five's an interesting number. Then you and you can reduce it down to eventually get to down to oh, two yeah, over the years. Yeah. So you do it. So well, pick figure it out what it is because you want what you want it to do is you want it to, t- it to taper off. You don't want there to be a sudden crash. So you yeah, start this off has by, to be over a decade or possibly even more. Well, don't, which therefore makes started. it very hard to do politically. Maybe, the first thing you do maybe when you get rid of the just it's staggering to me that capital gains is not are not taxed like income. You and I work, we pay tax on a certain at a certain rate mm-hmm. for labour, which is a thing that we should be encouraging people to do. But if you if you just buy shit and sit on it, which doesn't produce, do anything for the economy, it doesn't do anything for the society, we're like, oh, we'll barely tax you anything for that income. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense at all. I have two immediate responses to your suggestion there. One is uh-huh. uh, a scenario that has been uh, put to me, and this is a real scenario, that a significant proportion of what you might think are slumlord landlords with terrible properties and things don't get fixed are in fact mm. not evil bastard capitalists, but say a retired old woman whose husband's dead, they have a couple of properties, uh, she gets the old age pension plus 
a rental income from from their old house before they before she downsized and and moved into something more appropriate for her solo living in her twilight years. The house doesn't get maintained properly because it's just expensive and there isn't the cash flow uh, to to fix that. How do we how do we help that that property owner? How many properties does she need to own? To have to be able to live on um, the rental income from it, maybe one or two. What? What? Right? what, what? No, hang on, hang on, hang on. She's getting a pension, so we're we she's getting the same amount. Well, maybe maybe she's not getting a pension because she owns an investment property. Right. I don't know. It is not sustainable to have a bunch of people who own multiple properties uh, in a situation where people can't get one. Mm-hmm. It's not a not a reasonable. The, 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 that is a broken system. Sure. The pension should be enough. Should be enough to live on. Well, it yes. Should be supporting people. It, it should be enough to live on. The fact is, at the moment, we're paying pension to poor people who don't own anything and are paying increasing rents because of this broken market. And we're also paying the same pension to rich people who own a house and don't have any living costs because other than you know, food, they don't have any housing costs because they own a house. We're also paying it to people who have investment properties. That's, that's ridiculous. Now, I accept that it's politically difficult to start off with by going after a person who has one rental property. But we, that's why I'm saying you start with multiple ones. Mm. She does not need... She can sell them. She doesn't need... M- multiple properties so that she can just get more cash and be meanwhile be subsidized by the taxpayer meanwhile be wrecking housing for the generations who are paying the tax for her pension she's just sitting on all this real estate that is that that land you can't okay that, that okay. is not a thing that you should be getting tax free and 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 getting just just sit on i mean what really what we should have is land taxes that's the most equitable way of taxing people it's the best best way of, of taxing well people just sitting on large amounts of land but we used to have land taxes. Okay, I that's a rabbit hole I'm not prepared to go down just at the moment because I I don't understand uh, how the numbers would work. The second thing I wanted to mention though was for someone who is in this fortunate position now of of having their their investment properties and so on. When you talk about removing uh, negative gearing and and the other uh, kind of little benefits that they have. Mm. their political response next time they go to the ballot box is going to be, well, what's in it for me? What What about me? Mm. This is true. It is true. The, the rich are very good at advocating for their own self-interest, as we saw with the retiree tax bullshit when we were, stop- we were even just talking about stopping giving rich people a tax cash payout for being rich enough to own multiple shares. Yes. Yeah. So people who we're already paying them a pension, people who've set up their affairs so they've got no income, even though they've got lots of that, they've got share income, but they don't. They, they, they've um, set up their affairs so that they that they don't have a taxable income, um, and then we give them a cash on top of that. Yes, this is, and I know they, they made themselves very heard, including all the people, of course, who didn't in fact benefit from it at all, but thought that it was a pension tax because they <laughs> bought the stupid messaging. I, a stupid messaging, you say? I would say extremely smart and successful messaging. True, uh, cynical messaging. <laughs> <laughs> misleading people and and treating them as if they were stupid. Mm. Certainly, it was, it was it was effective. It was it's bananas that that was effective. I accept that none nothing that I'm proposing is going to be uh, something that, that that the wealthy will take lying down because they quite like the current situation. It is politically difficult to do anything that that shifts the balance back from the wealthy to ordinary people. 
because the wealthy have access to they have they have much more money to spend on political campaigning. They uh, have a much more sympathetic ear from the people who own all the commercial media for some reason. I don't know. It feels it feels like there aren't very many poor lefty people who own um, commercial media for some reason. I don't know. I don't know how that is. Mm. I, I accept that it is politically hard to sell. But do you know what we have that they don't? Uh, no numbers. Numbers. There are a lot more of us who are being badly screwed by the current situation than there are the people who are benefiting from it. This is true, but do we have uh, the energy, the the sort of psychic headspace left after all of this day-to-day struggling to pay the rent, to scratch together a mm. thousand bucks so we can move, and uh, well, three, four thousand bucks so we can we can move or whatever, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That be the problem. Be it, be in it, <laughs> be it not. Yes. That is, that is very much the problem. We are there are many more people who are screwed over by this sort of right wing policy that is has you know this housing crisis hurts a lot more people than benefit from it. It's just the people who benefit from it have, as you say, the um, energy space to lobby for for it, and also the financial resources to lobby for it. The you know real estate industry lobby are really organised. They're making a shitload out of the current broken system, and they will actively campaign to squash anything that fixes it. And literally, the only thing that will undo that is the rest of us being organised. The fact the fact that we now have that they were able to in April halve social security to half the poverty line. It was at the poverty line up until it was at the poverty line up until January when they that they did the first cut, and then in April they cut it the rest of the way down to half. Using the uh, the massive, well, what they would say, massive increase to bring it up to something near the poverty line <laughs> as part of That's the COVID nineteen right. response. Yes, yeah, and then and then they managed to then they cut it further in April, arguing that oh no, it's an increase. It's not a very big increase. It's an increase of fifteen dollars a week, but it's an increase as they cut it because they were like. It's an increase on the payment three payments ago. Yeah, yeah, it was an increase on the payment three payments ago, but that's not how we normally do these things. When you add it, bring in a tax, they don't compare it with what it was three tax sets ago. They don't, when, when you... No, the, the, the chocolate ration is up to 20 grams a, a month. What? It is bananas that they're able to sell that. What, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with yeah, you? Yeah, and of course, we've got the state, the um, you know conservative capture of the ABC. We've got, like, what, what do we actually have that helps us Organised to fight I'm back against this shit. I'm not so big a, a fan of the idea that the ABCs had conservative capture this, that, and the other. Well, they're cowed. They're beaten into like they're into irrelevance. Really, they won't. They won't. The ABC they're, they're... lives in in fear. It it kind of always has. I mean, I did work for the ABC, admittedly, back when you know we were transmitting in Morse code uh, to to people living. <laughs> In, in I have to say that, that beep, 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 that was one of your highlights. Uh, best you know, show we I ever hope people did. still remember it. The ABC yeah. has always been worried because there's always been that threat of, well, if you if you start showing too much bias, you know, there will be punishments later. Uh, that That has, of course, well, there's the perception that that's become more common in recent years. Well, it's, it's Richard Alston and his stupid, uh, his book of... Like every, every, you know, they sit down there and everything that they think is critical of the coalition, they write a book. And the Labor Party and the left haven't ever done that in return. Like, there's there's only one side that's really concerted, made a concerted effort to berate the ABC for for this supposed lefty bias to the point where they self police over the other. They they self correct massively the other way now. I always enjoyed uh, when, for a brief period, I was station manager of 3D Radio in Adelaide, the community station there 
music station. And way back in the 1970s, when it first got its broadcast licence, an organisation that was also trying for one of those licences was uh, an evangelical Christian organisation. And they did not get their licence, and 3D radio was called something else back then, but it, it did because the government agency that was doing the licences felt that they were claiming to represent all of the Christian churches, but in fact, quite clearly from the way they were structured, they were not. And they were essentially said, yeah, have a licence, but you need to structure yourself in a way that is more representative and more inclusive of what you're claiming to represent in in kind of a structural way. Uh, but they never did that. But what they did do is is they had teams of people listening to the, the alternative music stations so that whenever a song had a bad word in it or a presenter made a mistake or anything like that, when it came to licence renewal time, they had this catalogue of grievances to present to say why 3D Radio's licence should not be renewed. It was quite hilarious. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that it, it feels often a bit hopeless being a lefty because although we have the numbers on our side, clearly what we're advocating for is much more beneficial to most people than what the right wing are selling, which, um, I mean, I I do love seeing, what did I see on Facebook the other day? um, Johnny Rotten from from the Sex Pistols uh, has some quote about how um, it's now the the right wing who are the anti-establishment types and the left wing who are the establishment. And what he means is, the whole right wing line about woke people and cancel culture thing, but you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the, Johnny, yeah, you're right. The the um, establishment are really concerned about the right wing campaign for lower taxes and uh, no, and and against any actual kind of progressive change. Yeah, that really threatens the establishment. The establishment would hate hate there to be more more populist right wing uprisings demanding less taxes for the rich. I mean, yeah. No. Nothing says. Yeah. <laughs> it strikes me that you, you know we do have a problem. We don't own we don't own the media. We don't you know, we, we don't have the newspapers. We don't have the commercial TV stations. We don't have the radio. They're all conservative um, because they're owned by conservative people and they advocate for commercial interests. Even even if they were neutral in terms of what the owners want, their business model is one that's in favour of commercial interests. So they're not going to be in favour of anything that that improves a lot of ordinary people at the expense of you know big business and the rich and. Even even on social issues, we're still behind the eight ball because we don't get organised every Sunday morning and go out and and on mass, you know, attend a religious organisation, a service where where what do we do? We talk on Twitter. I think that's unfair to equate all of conservative politics with uh, the church-going Christian population. No, no, I'm saying in terms of the social stuff. So the stuff where you know they're demanding more privileges at the moment with the religious. Religious discrimination bill. That stuff. Those people. It's. I don't even think that's a majority of religious people. But those people themselves are still. They form themselves into into the same churches, and they are organised. It's a habit that 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 the religious people in general have mm. of a regular meekly, weekly community. You know, meeting together. And so for the those members of that community who are you know fringe right wing ratbags like the ACL, you've got a ready made organised group that you can draw on to effectively lobby politicians compared with what have we got on the left? We don't have an equivalent of that at all. And yet we live in a time, uh, and this fascinates me, when we have the mechanisms, including the internet thing on, on which you and I are currently speaking to each other and um, and you know, we can actually see each other, we could scale this up to any number of, of things and have community meetings. 
and yet there isn't that much of an interest in doing that from people. I mean, we, we do have organisations that, that try and get this kind of online thing happening, but for all of their work, really the revolution doesn't come from having a witty YouTube video every couple of weeks. No. Um, there needs to be effort put into actually organising, actually deciding things, actually having leaders and leaders doing some leading, etc., etc., etc. I sometimes wonder whether part of that uh, is because the community that has broadly, uh, if not developed the technology, been uh, best at using it are actually pretty well off. That unlike steam locomotive drivers in the railways of the 1800s, which led you know the, the strikes and the fights for the eight-hour week and worker safety and things like that, who, you know, were, were really fighting for, I don't want to say for survival, but for, you know, much more fundamental issues in their lives. I don't really see the, the kind of union of systems administrators deciding to turn the internet off for 48 hours as a protest. No. Because they're actually quite well off. And that's such an integrated part of their life that they don't want to damage themselves. They're not the Whereas left. for industrial workers of the 1800s, early uh, 1900s, but you know they're not cutting off their own nose, as it were, if they, they create a protest. Well, you're talking about the middle class not being fired up at this point. Yeah, I suppose I am. But aren't we all middle class these days? Well, no. No, people who are on, half, uh, on a payment that's half the poverty line. Uh, and this is the other thing, by the way, in terms of the what we need to do in terms of housing, but also in terms of just life, quality of life in, in Australia generally, wages need to increase, and they've been squashed for, what, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Well, um, what I think we had... The Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, was suggesting last week that um, migration is one of the reasons why wages have been low and therefore the borders being closed might lift wages. And I don't think that's got anything to do with it. Is that as a supply-demand thing? I suppose, that we were were bringing in people who would work and therefore we had more workers available or... Yeah, this never... Quite frankly, that, that sounds a little bit kind of these immigrants are stealing our jobs. Yes, exactly. And, and yeah, when Greg Jericho wrote a piece on it yesterday, I think he got bashed by all the uh, anti-migration people who were like, oh, migrants stole my job. Thing is, the only reason why migration would negatively affect your job... Migration, yes, it increases the supply of labour, but it also increases the demand for labour. Absolutely. So migration is not a net negative in terms of supply demand against workers. It is only a net negative for workers when the migrants don't have rights. When they have equal rights to the rest of us, they're not undercutting, they're not easily exploited by employers who will exploit workers. When migrants are a source of easily exploited labour, then yes, they do bring down wages and conditions. But the solution to that is to give them full rights, like every other worker. And to give all workers proper rights so that the employers can't even take advantage of migrants not knowing what their rights are um, or, or the, the rights being um, obscure and, and uh, being difficult for workers to access them so there being some kind of intrinsic difficulty that migrants would have in exercising those rights. If all workers in Australia have the same rights, then migration doesn't have that downward pressure at all. And yet you never see the workers on the, who are complaining about migrants calling for migrants to have the same wages and conditions because they don't... All it is is I want to have someone I can blame for my shitty wages 
And it's a very handy call for right-wing political parties because without actually addressing any of the things that really screw over workers, like shitty protections, the fact that Social Security is half the poverty line, that's got to have a huge impact on wages. The fact that people can't go, no, I will uh, retrain or I will, uh, I will, This what you're offering me is a disgrace. I'm going to come out, survive in the meantime and find a better, better job, push for better. Like people can't do that because Social Security is at half the poverty line. So we've set up a system where people have to take what they're given or die. Um, in addition to what else we've done with Social Security, which is uh, all the mutual obligation, in quotes, mm, the, mm. the free labour, that also undercuts wages and conditions. So shitty workers' conditions and and rights, the, the um, successful right-wing campaign to squash unions over the last 20, 30 years and, and you know, criminalise any activities that they undertake. The poverty line, Social Security, the, the work for the doll undercutting wages, the lack of protections for migrants and making given, making their visa conditions ever worse, and all of that combined... Yeah, that has what that's what squashed wage growth. Undo all of that. It's really easy. Restore workers' rights, make sure they apply to migrants, put social security back to what it was last year at the poverty line, get rid of mutual obligations bullshit. And there, look, suddenly we've got upward pressure on wages. And at the same time, give renters proper rights so that you're losing the the worst landlords out of the the rental market and, you know, we might get back to a place where ordinary workers can can live decent lives. And I think what's really going to make all of these proposals such a success is that they're already core policies of the Australian Labor Party. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so this is the thing I was going to talk about. Uh, we haven't even talked about the, vac- the, the, the New South Wales, Victoria, the, the spread of Delta variant and stuff, and we'll get to that. Maybe at the uh, end. Well, it's, all, it's all stupid. It's turned into this dumb interstate rivalry which goes back to... Well, 170 years, uh, which is 170 years ago this month that Victoria celebrated not being part of New South Wales. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I saw the, the front pages, the glorious, happy front pages about no longer being part of New South Wales. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're a New South Welshman. So from here in Victoria... Well, originally from South Australia, so I, I don't have strong feelings about this. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we'll see, because... I mean, I can I can have strong feelings about this, obviously, because it all turns very, very stupid. Well, I'll, I'll say... And I saw your tweet yesterday about the Norman Swan and his stupid film of one light cycle worth of Sydney cars. Ten seconds <laughs> worth of traffic on New South Head Road, which is an extremely busy arterial road, from the centre of like the CBD into the eastern suburbs, and I, you've got to concede that that proves definitely something. Yeah, yeah, it proves that he shot ten seconds of video when there happened to be a cluster of vehicles on the road in complete defiance of all of the data. Anyway, data uh, doesn't. You don't need to compare it with the other. If you're trying to show that a change hasn't happened or has happened, you don't need to compare it with what it was uh, on a normal day. What are you talking about? Madness. <laughs> yeah. So from here in Victoria, this is what it feels like. I, I, don't know if, I don't know if this has been conveyed to people in New South Wales. But what it feels like is that we did the hard yards of every time uh, the, the thing came out. We squashed it so it didn't spread. We, we, mm. we kept it down so we didn't have the – it didn't run amok to the point where you couldn't control it anymore and you, you, know, you had your health systems overwhelmed like overseas. And then New South Wales got lucky with Ruby mm-hmm. Princess and it got lucky with a couple of other things and then got the idea that it was... People make it. This is not an interstate thing. 
the the number of cases you can actually trace back to oh, oh my god ruby princess i know very few really New was quite lucky about a it. tiny part of that that's turned into a little totem that people want to wave it's part of the, you had ruby princess and i go yeah and you down in victoria didn't have a contact tracing system or in in any meaningful sense a public health system so at you anyway the point we're making the point the, I've got where it looks like from victoria is that by the time that this variant came up in New South Wales a few weeks ago, it was pretty obvious what needed to be done to squash it, which is an actual proper short, sharp lockdown to get it to squash it before it gets any further. And New South Wales was so determined, the new, the new Liberal government in New South Wales was so determined to show that they were different from Victoria, didn't need to do lockdowns, and, and you know we, we, we do it better, and that's, that's just a stupid Victorian thing to do, that they didn't do it until it was too late and it spread and now it's down here in Victoria. That's what it looks like from down here. And that if they'd done a short, sharp lockdown yeah. at the time, when well, and rather than trying to make some kind of I point. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it looks like through a political lens. Well, they didn't and, do a short, sharp and lockdown. And I must admit, I'm feeling, I'm feeling extremely uncomfortable about this, <laughs> this aspect of the conversation oh, no. now. And I smile as I say that because, I mean, we're in it and here we are. Because I have been trying very hard not to play armchair epidemiologist and compare apples and oranges and put look at all this stuff through a political lens because I think that is an enormously problematic thing to do during times of a pandemic. It feels like that is the reason why this happened, though, because of the interstate thing and this, this larger fight where the libs are trying to argue that, that Daniel Andrews is a psychotic lunatic who is, is, uh, whose lockdowns were unnecessary and, and pointless. And it's so much more important to them to keep that point that it was to go, well, in this case, we should probably do it because Delta spreads really fast. And that that's the reason they didn't do it. And that's why it's spread in this occasion. And that, that that's really the cause of where we are right now. Because if it hadn't been for this, we've got to make a point about Daniel Andrews. If they'd just done that, this wouldn't have spread. It would have been squashed before it happened. And my and my response to that is, if you look at this through a political lens, then it is very easy to see, yes, that these political factors may well have been an important thing in the minds of the government in New South Wales. Which then led However, to this the consequence. However, the next step to say that, and this difference is what caused this thing that is the thing i have a problem with hmm. because we actually don't know it's there will doubtless be modeling and analysis and other things in due course and perhaps it will uh support this causality theory but also perhaps it won't. Hang on, how could it not? Like, it's a virus that spreads through contact. If there was a lockdown, I, I agree, like, lockdown is a hammer. It's a, blunt, it's a blunt instrument. Well, here we go, here we go. We're talking about what is and is not a lockdown. This, this word lockdown uh, yeah. is, has been bandied about a lot in the last few weeks. Well, during the entire thing. Mm. And and a particular set of restrictions is being called a lockdown and a different set of restrictions is being not called a yeah. lockdown. And there's an awful lot of politicisation of the word, which I think is extremely unhelpful. Hmm. Uh, and this is why I, I did 
kick off when Norman Swan posted his misleading 10 seconds of video of a few cars on the road. It's why I kick off at telephoto lens photographs of people at the beach, making them look crowded together when in fact they are well spaced apart and of no risk uh, to anyone. Mm. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on. That one, that one, hang on. The Norman Swan, I would say those are different things. So, both, I mean, both of them are the same thing in the sense that they are um, exaggerating the threat to make a political point, and that um, I think that backfires and is a bad, bad way of doing it. I would disagree with that, that, that those two things are equally a problem, though, because people in the cars, that's actually what you would expect if people weren't going on public transport, for example. Like, you would expect that's actually reducing the exposure. That's people, we don't know. Presumably, those were going, they were going to necessary tasks. You can't, you can't. Well, it was 8.15 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, there were far less cars on that normally extremely busy road, which is absolutely chocker at 8.15 in the morning. Even if there were more, like that would indicate that they were off the trains where it's more likely to spread. Well, indeed, and the trains are empty. Mm. Uh, the data shows that uh, Sydney uh, currently has fewer than 15% mm. of the, the trips happening in it are... Uh, uh, than normal, often often days down to, to 12 or even 11. Same scale of figures as Melbourne's during yeah. last year's lockdown, same because as... Because they're now doing a lockdown. You know, London in lockdown, because they're the essential workers or the essential trips to go to the shops yeah. or to go to a drive-in COVID testing exactly. facility, which is another whole thing I want to complete. Yeah. So I think that one's not a problematic one. I think I, I think that the example... I think that that's just bad reporting. Yeah, I agree. Unhelpfully bad report. In, in the same way as some of the some of the reactions are over, over the top. So the thing where they, they a bunch of West, Western Sydney hospitals are refusing to let fathers into the postnatal wards after the, the after the partners give birth. That's that is unnecessary. It's unhelpful. Like they're literally there during the birth, the most sterile environment you know you would expect, and then they can't mm. stay. For, that's harmful and stupid. But that's it. The the beach one. I don't know that I agree with the idea that. All those people at Bondi, like yes, they the exaggerate, exaggerating photos are misleading, and that's a shit way of doing it. But the reality, like yes, people at the beach are probably spread out. As long as they're spread out enough mm-hmm. that the, the, the virus can't travel between them when they're sitting in their towels, but they're still going to and from it through shared areas, through the shared sure. shared like that's still. So let's see those photos. Yeah, what I'm saying is that that yeah. is it's that's a, it's a, sort a of lazy thing that, media cliche. I agree, but the overall point that that people shouldn't be. During a lockdown, they shouldn't be sitting around at the beach. That's probably true. Why not? Why? Why not? I mean, my doctor, for example, has said what I need to do is get outside. I need vitamin D because I'm inside far too often. For my own mental health, I should be out socialising. So is that essential or not? Now, I'm putting that up as devil's advocate stuff. Well, the Victorian one is you can do exercise. So you can go out to do a certain amount of exercise and things. But that's not what the people at Bondi were doing. They were sitting around soaking up the sun. They could do that at home. Yeah, in a- because the health order in New South Wales said outdoor exercise or recreation, which is why that then people get pissed. Oh, well, recreation isn't a thing. Why should you be enjoying yourself? And we get some sort of Puritan work ethic thing in here, which means if you are... Well, I think it's more that they're trying to go for the minimum things that are needed. You should also be suffering. How dare you have enjoyable times during a pandemic? There's a lot of that about. Well, that's and I agree that's shit. But I, well, I can see the argument of... You want the you want the the lockdown. The point of it is, you are minimum. You are as much as you possibly can without having to go to the extreme of 
you know, a real lockdown where nothing operates. Well, with locks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So sure well, that- we couldn't because the world would starve because, you know, trucks wouldn't be driving around with our food yeah. and, and yeah, et cetera. There is a certain minimum amount of logistical operations to keep us all alive. Exactly. But you wanted to get and it down healthy, to that. healthy, I will add, which includes mental health. Which is why the exercise thing was the exception in, in Victoria. Mm-hmm. It does feel like the New South Wales version was trying to be a, no, no, you can do more things here than you can in Victoria. We're not going to be as as, as heavy-handed as Victoria. But here are all the better things about being New South Wales. Look, we've managed to survive so far. And I think that was irresponsible. Yeah, given and 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 I can variant. see putting putting the 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 quite valid perception of there being like a political play between the political parties in the two different states mm. about how to respond. I can see that there would be opinions around the table thinking, "Yeah, look, I think we've got this. I think we don't need to have as harsher restrictions." But let's see how it goes for a couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. And which is a very irresponsible thing to be doing with something like this. We know what happens with Delta overseas. We've seen it. They have enough information to know that they shouldn't be playing fast or loose with it like that. Yeah, and and there is, of course, numerical modelling that they have access to, which you and I haven't seen and probably will never see. Uh, and it has margins of errors. In, I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, actually, I've got it right here. <laughs> no, yes. wait. So that's a child's pencil case. Sorry, no, I thought I, I thought I had the modelling, but but I didn't. And, and possibly about as accurate, given our relatively limited understanding <laughs> of how this this thing works. There was one a tweet just the other day that really did piss me off, though. And it's someone who is is a kind of healthy living influencer type of person, and they have done a TED talk and all of that. Mm. And, and they were saying, look, by all means, go outside and exercise, but then don't have an ice cream and stroll along the promenade. And I, and I felt, look, actually for some of us, the stroll along the promenade is the exercise, and if I want to have an ice cream while I'm doing it, why the hell not? It's not harming you, it's not harming me. Just getting out and moving, all right, I'm, I'm not quite that fragile, where are you getting the ice cream from, though? You're, you're mm-hmm. presumably getting the ice cream from a, you know, a shared facility where viruses can spread. Like, you know, but it's food, mate. I can go and get food if I choose to eat an ice cream rather than a a piece of sushi while I'm getting my daily walk in. I think they're suggesting like everybody going up to like an ice cream van or whatever is probably not a good virusy type thing. Oh, it's outdoors. You're only there for a um. moment. Do we still spread on surfaces? See, here's, here's the thing. We've got, this, we've got this Puritan idea that if I am grabbing some takeaway food, see, if I'd got fish and chips and I'm, I'm scoffing on some chips while walking on my daily walk, that counts as food, whereas if I'm having an ice cream, it doesn't. I think it's more that if you're doing a short, sharp lockdown, you try and minimise all of the people standing around at a, at a shared food facility. You make sure that you have proper um, assistance for the people, the workers and the people who can't otherwise make a living during that period. So you're suggesting no takeaway food? Well, whatever the modelling is, that may, whether that's necessary or not, and you do it consistently. But I think during our So first- if I get a pad thai, that's okay. That's getting takeaway food, but getting an ice cream is not okay. That's just Puritanism. No, I'm, tra- uh, no, I'm saying where you think about... I, I've got no prejudice either way. Or They're all yummy things. No, I'm talking about... <laughs> like, you want to do the... You want to figure out ways that you can do it to the maximum extent that isn't a, a public health risk. And you, it's obviously a bit of a mm. 
Yeah. I, I, I guess by putting forward these examples, I'm trying to cause you to say things like that, which are numerical. And I go, yeah, unfortunately, I, one does get the impression, in, in the way that you get the impression that uh, party politics are, are a key part of the decision-making, I am positing that puritanism is playing a key part in the criticism of whether people are or are not complying with the lockdown rules in front of them. Oh, I, I do agree with you that it shouldn't be the, the other people complying. Thing. I, I don't think that, that the criticism of, of, of people, the public generally is, is fair. It's, it's, the criticism I'd be making would be of the decision-making process of the, the New South Wales government in leaving mm. things late to try, to try it on because they got away with it so far, we, even though this variant's worse. And I, would, I very much would say that what, what has happened in relation to the supports that are offered this time is very much a political decision and it's a very harmful one. So last time we had... Um, social oh, no argument there. Yeah, we had Social Security set at the, at the, at the poverty line. And now what we have... <laughs> the luxury of the poverty yeah, line. Yeah, that's right. Luxury. Isn't it bizarre that we have to say that, you know, that that's some kind of great win that the poverty line rather than... Well, it's not half the poverty line. Whereas this time, Victoria had nothing, no support in the last one. They, they deliberately... Uh, set it so that it was only you could only get support if you'd be, if you lost a certain amount of work after seven days. First seven days you get no help at all. Victoria was told to go f, f itself by by Scummo, um, and then this time New South Wales and, and Scummo came up with a deal, which is now the one that's being applied to Victoria as well, where businesses can get money if they've got a thirty percent reduction. Workers who've lost work can get a smaller less money than last time, um, but they can get some money. But um, you get more if you've lost more hours so if you're you know you're a better if you have somebody who's working 40 hours a week and they lose it they get more money from the taxpayer than somebody who could only have 20 hours of work and loses it um which is you know you've got to love got to love uh, taxpayers giving more money to people who've got more money and if you had already lost your job for example during the pandemic last year and hadn't got one back again you get nothing you get nothing you lose good day sir it is obscene so um, the justification that the Conservatives always run for why Social Security is set to half the poverty line is, well, you should go out there and get a job. Well, there aren't any bloody jobs now, so what's the justification? Why should people... It's obscene at the best of times, and it's based on this lie that, you know, jobs are easy to come by and we don't have, you know, a significant shortfall in the number of jobs available for the people who want them. But even if that were the case at other and times... And jobs is an amorphous thing. Yeah. That random person, random job... Bolt them together. There you go. And what we had last time was a thing that worked. JobKeeper. So yes, someone someone who has been unemployed for for three years because they clearly have difficulties with literacy and other such things, um, and and therefore or 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 kind of have a tattoo on the side of their face and therefore no one in a customer service role will employ them, etc. Mm. etc. Oh, that's fine. We'll just put them. Uh, to work uh, in the cybersecurity skills shortage. Done. Solved. It is obscene to me. Like, that, those that, people do all have tattoos on their faces, so that's another whole thing. The prejudice against people with tattoos is, is, is really weird. But anyway, yeah, it, is, it is, strikes me as obscene that we are ever okay with people having half the poverty line to live on because you can't. All you do is you go backwards, you can't get health care, you can't have... Well, that's the definition of it, right? Yeah, you become homeless, you're stuffed. It's, it's, that's right, you're half the poverty line, it's, it's obscene. Um, but the, the fact that they're not doing it this time doesn't just harm the people who uh, are being screwed normally in the social security sphere when, since they halved it, but it also 
endangers everybody in terms of the spread of the virus because if that's your situation, you can't stay at home. Well, particularly if you're homeless. If you're homeless, you can't stay at home because you don't have a home anymore. Um, but every time they turn around to people and they're like, you need to stay home, but they don't provide proper supports where people can afford to stay at home, mm. then people don't stay at home because they don't have a choice. And, you know, you don't send the police out to punish the over-policing shit. And, and, I, and I, I am with the people who are like, you're not very progressive if you're like, hey, the police should just be, be going after the, the people, people who are out and about. Oh, I, I didn't get to make my my, my, um, my pun about this too. So just in relation to the New South Wales thing, I was going to say that it did feel like the in the, both the federal government, the federal LNP and the New South Wales LNP, that, that in relation to public health, far more dangerous than even the anti-vaxxers have been the anti-vixxers. Oh dear! It, it was worth it was worth me coming back to it, wasn't it? I, I, I yeah, yeah anti-vixxers. Yeah, sure. they, they've caused it's more harm podcast, than the anti-vixxers. Mate. Yeah, it's it's a winner. Has to be. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like that's going to be a highlight. That's, you're going to see that everywhere. That's, after this, that is play. that is the grab for the promo oh, for the yeah. podcast. Absolutely, and also because I I actually worded it so punctually. Like not, not only was there that wonderful uh-huh. pun, but also I managed to phrase it in the punchiest way. Um, in the, Fantastic just, work! What a grab. Anyway. Yeah, it is. It is outrageous to me that there is not more public outrage that this time the poor are just being starved and workers are being hit, and the deal that's being offered in a circumstances where there is a much more virulent variant of this virus are so stingy and shit that they go to cause more widespread harm than even just the people who are being starved. And that we just had an example last year of what worked, and they're screwing it up again. They're doing something out there like, it worked too well. The poor were, t- were too... We're, we're actually, they had decent living conditions for a brief period of time. Can't do that again. Meanwhile, in a magnificent bit of political communication, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison went on to Kyle and Jackie O. Yes. Uh, this Thank you week for reminding me of this. To deny the rumours about shitting his pants at Engadine Mackers. And he brought the subject up, can I say. So, you know, this isn't a dead cat thrown on the table to defuse it. I was about to say, it's a, it's a very shitty cat. This is a giant steaming turd of distraction, and it's worked. It has worked. Well, up until so, now, we hadn't mentioned it, to be fair. But but has it worked? So has Scummo come to the conclusion that, that people are a bit bored with dead cats now? They're like, ah, we're in a pandemic. There's death everywhere. Who cares about a dead cat? But if you actually come and shit on the table, people will turn around and pay attention and stop worrying well, about it. Well, this coming Tuesday is an essential polling Tuesday. Let's let's see what the numbers look like. Imagine being the kind of Prime Minister who would prefer to talk about shitting his pants than anything he's actually doing. He has six media advisors on his payroll, and what he's come up with to, to this week is shitting on the table and and a newspaper column for his dog. This podcast is brought to you by pounding your fists into the dirt in frustration and anguish. Sometimes terrible things happen. Sometimes vicious extremists get to put your basic humanity to a public vote. And then, even when they lose that public vote, they get new powers to harm you anyway. Sometimes a public vote results in a mob of incompetent monsters being granted a majority of seats in Parliament when most people voted against them. Sometimes the people and organisations who are meant to be there to push back against the worst and most destructive ideas of that mob completely give in and decide instead to back them, leaving you with no idea how anything could ever be okay again. That's when you need pounding your fists into the dirt in frustration and anguish. Find a nature strip, a lawn, a field. Pounding your fists into the dirt in frustration and anguish is available almost everywhere. 
kneel on the ground, lean forward and just pummel the earth with your hands until physical exhaustion drowns out the deep sorrow and fear threatening to overtake you. Comparable to banging your head against the nearest surface, but 75% less likely to result in serious injury. We are confident you will at least be mildly satisfied by pounding your fists into the dirt in frustration and anguish. All right, well, I suppose that leaves us with the last thing I wanted to discuss, which was just a brief discussion of what is the point of all of this discussion we have? What is the point of these podcasts? <laughs> what is the point of the tweeters? We're increasingly in our own bubbles. Most of the people listening to this podcast are progressive people. I doubt very much that, that um, you know, L- there are many LNP voters who are listening to what we're saying here. Yeah, and, and my own podcast, where I, why again, I again, you know, get into the politics with people, uh, that's not going to be listened to by people who disagree hmm. with, with what we're saying. So why do we do it? And What is I, the porpoise? What is the porpoise? I feel that there is a lot to actually be said for, particularly on the progressive side, the only way that we're going to get change is for people to be fired up and to be fighting and people to be re- having progressive thoughts and progressive ideals reinforced in a way that they're not, they're certainly not in the media, they're certainly not in the, in the community at large, and that if we're ever going to be able to actually act on them, Part of it involves talking them through, working out what arguments are more powerful, building up that confidence to go out and argue with the people on the other side and to be putting these points. Well, it's consensus formation. Exactly. You have to decide what the topic of discussion is. And in fact, there is a German word for that process, and I've never been able to find again what it is. So if there's any German speakers listening, the discussion that leads to the agreement of what the discussion is about huh. is a thing. And and certainly this helps that. It helps build energy. It helps find out what are the things, you know, there's a whole set of things we we, we discuss and might agree on. What is the, the centre of the Venn diagram there? What is, what is the set of issues and of potential policies that truly unite this amorphous random group of people? But what happens next? What do we then do with that well let me make a suggestion so you know how the biggest right-wing thing at the moment is they're determined to attack people whatever that they think this this boogeyman of the woke and cancel culture and basically what the the new words that they've come up with for what they they also used to call political correctness yeah i.e it's people just pointing at them and saying in a loud and clear voice mate you're full of shit well worse than that the thing that you're doing is bad is mean, is nasty, is harmful. What they hate is being told that when they're making a, a joke that they like that, that mocks and demeans LGBTI people or, or people of other race or whatever, um, or the poor, or any of the things that they do, which the benefit to them of those things is it reinforces their privilege and it reinforces them as being in the in-group and it helps them form a community of, of the people with power who can then feel like they deserve that power and privilege and that they shouldn't have to do anything about it. And, you know, the thing that they don't want to feel like, they don't want that punctured immediately by people being like, what did you just say? Jeez, mate, don't be a dick. Like, what? Can you... And us being more clear about why those things are harmful and us um, being effective in turning around... So in the same ways that people can't just stand up and make casual jokes about poofters or something now like they might have 20 years ago. Mm. They don't feel comfortable doing that because there's been all of that. They know that the people around them will immediately judge them as being dickheads. Like if 
50 years ago, they were making jokes using the N-word. That change, that undermined, and that's what they resent, and that is why the whole thing that they do, with the whinging about woke, culture, woke and cancel culture and all that stuff, is them pushing back at that. And then and social justice warriors and virtue signaling. It's their way of turning around and saying um, that actually the people who are saying to them, come on, mate, don't be a dick. Why are you being such... Can you not see how that's harmful and horrible and oppressive? They want to be able to turn around and be like, no, no, we're actually the ordinary people, and those are holier than our Puritans. They're, they're, they're the... They're the uh, the, the the establishment with their fainting couches. <laughs> and they try to reframe it that way. And the rest of us need to be turning back and going, hang on, no, we're not. We're just the same people who are, who are saying, no, when you promote hatred, you're causing harm. And when you do that, everyone around you is judging you. You should feel bad. That stuff needs to stop. When you stand back and you're like, hang on, me as a rich person, I should own all my investment properties. And, and, and the tenants are disgusting, um, tattooed filth animals who need to be kept in line by, by me going through the house every six months. All of these things that they say that they reinforce each other with, which then encourages them to go forward and, and form coalitions to do more shit to our rights. The more of us who are out there immediately being in a position to call bullshit, and in ordinary ways, and if we've talked about it a lot, we can do it in a casual way and an effective way and, and counter that before it builds up into this tidal wave that then harms us. And in, the, in, and, and in the same ways, they have been very effective in building up this community where amongst themselves, like if you go to the Australian, you know, the Australian has its, its web, you know, its, its app, this paid app. And in order to comment on any of their stories, you have to pay, be a paid subscriber to the Australian. Mm. So by definition, that creates a certain readish, a certain group of people talking to each other, and the the woke wokeisters and the cancel culture and all the same dialogue, the same stupid lines they've got. They reinforce, they build that up, then they take it out and they use it in the in the world. They have a community. They can use these terms. So they can find each other, and that then filters back into politicians feeling that they need to act on that. It filters into like it boosts it, and they've been very effective in doing that. And we need to do the same thing in return, in reverse to push back. So that hopefully we can get to a position where we can do the things that we're talking about today that are at the political cost and the financial cost of the wealthy and powerful. We're pushing uphill a lot. Unless we can fire up people to go out there and use our numbers, what change is there ever going to be? Indeed. And the, uh, in, in the period immediately before Obama's uh, election as president, uh, president of the United States, etc., the book... Don't Think of an Elephant by George Lakoff was, was kicked around a lot in political communication. And the main thrust of the book is that on the conservative side of American politics, I mean, because he's an American writer, etc., etc., mm. same applies elsewhere, that the think tanks created uh, during, you know, let's say, the 70s and 80s, uh, in response to the kind of countercultures of the 60s, etc., was to develop that kind of language and that kind of mm. pushback language to to frame the debate. Yeah. So Lakoff, L-A-K-O-F-F, talks about taking, if you like, the linguistic high ground by creating the language that's used to talk about these things. Everything from referring to Social Security as a safety net, i.e. you have to be plummeting and about to hit the ground before... The safety net becomes a thing in your life. No, they don't, they don't call it that. They don't call it that. They call it welfare, so it makes them sound like they're being generous and it's some kind of benevolent. As thing. well, it's a welfare safety net. I don't think they ever call it a safety net. The safety net is because the problem with calling it a safety net for them, and the reason why we call it a safety net, is that if it's a safety net, you shouldn't be cutting holes in it. 
And all they want to do is cut holes in it and make it harder and harder to access. If it's a safety net, it should not be possible for the government to cut someone off and leave them to starve. The, the idea of a safety net is it's a bottom line. And it applies to... And the other benefit of that terminology is it benefits everyone. Okay. It's a safety net for you and me, for every worker. It doesn't have to just be somebody who is in a wretched state in the first place. It can be... It, the point of safety net is it's a... It's a security for all of us. That's why I'm using the term social security. I hate welfare because welfare sounds like something they can take away, that, they, that, that, that it's not a right. Okay. But the point to this is that that language used to frame the rate, you've just given um, an example of it there, is the way the words are used frame the debate. So if you've got some nice, well-funded think tanks that are producing policy papers and politicians are reinforcing the use of those words and so on and so forth. Border security. Eventually, it's very easy for those who are trying to combat those ideas to make the mistake of using the same language that they've already yes. made that... Yes, ex- good point. The, ...the subject that... It's about, as soon as you have it, your example's a good one, border security. Who doesn't want to have good border security, right? No one wants border insecurity, whatever it means, but that's a bad-sounding thing, right? And you're right, because the left isn't, hasn't been doing enough using the alternative. We're not using enough counterterms and getting used to using them amongst ourselves so that when we use them in public, we don't accidentally keep using the right-wing framing. Yep. And the Labor Party is always using the right-wing framing on all of these things, and it reinforces them. It, it concedes the argument. They're afraid to sound weird and different to what is out there in the government's thing. They don't want, they don't want to sound like they're different from the government. I thought, hang on, isn't, isn't your whole aim to sound yeah. different to the government? So that – anyway, that's a, so you're right, that's that, a whole thing. That's a good point. That's a whole other reason why the more that we use – we talk amongst ourselves and get used to using and normalising progressive language. Mm. The, the, the more confident we are in using it outside yeah. with our in opponents and also just in, in neutral circumstances. And therefore, yeah, you're right. That, that practice is, is in and of itself powerful and useful. Agreed. Good point. Absolutely agreed. So I don't, we're not just wasting our time doing this? Um, that, I mean, that's a separate question, obviously. <laughs> no, I, I think we've got it solved, Jeremy. I think we've, um, we've, we've dealt with and solved many of the world's problems today. Which is, of course, the whole point of having a podcast. Exactly. Um, Sugarian, thank you for coming back on again. Uh, My pleasure, Where Jeremy. can people find you? People can find me just Stilgarian name. Just try and spell it how it sounds. Google will sort you out. Uh, you can find my uh, podcast, The 9pm Edict, on all of the podcast places. Uh, and then there'll be links of that through to what I write about cybersecurity and government policy on the internet and such things. Excellent. Uh, you can find Well May We Say on the Twitters at Well May We Say. Uh, certainly contribute any thoughts and, and feelings following the episode. We, we particularly like uh, hearing some kind of feedback. Thank you to everybody who is supporting the podcast. Thank you for everybody who stuck with us, even though we had a big gap you know, between episodes. A bunch of reasons for that, but hopefully now that uh, now that this move has occurred, we will be in a more, sustain- more stable situation to doing uh, more regular podcasts. So we are back. And uh, thank you, everybody, for coming back with us. Thank you, Stagarian. My pleasure. And we'll see you all hopefully next week. Bye. Bye. Well, just before I go, uh, yeah, quick reminder, you've got a few days left to go to the 9pmedic.com and uh, pledge your support for the late winter series 2021. I uh, hope you can do that. If not, just tell people about the podcast.
The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.